Beautiful fun. Be good. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for um, the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. Um, the two readings this morning ask for a fine mind, a fine distinction. Paul was um, speaking to the Corinthians about problems in the community. Um, and he's chastising the Corinthians because they're enabling, they're, they're passing on a moral wrong. Some guy has having an affair with his father's wife, I think. Paul is shocked and angry and he chastises them and says that instead of letting it go on, they should be in sorrow. And he says he's already made a judgment, so he accuses the man and asks the man to leave the Corinthian community. He's urging the community um, to take a stand and accuse somebody where somebody's doing something they shouldn't do. In the Gospel reading, Christ is um, being tested by the Pharisees. He walks into the temple and there's a man with a crippled hand and my sense of it is that Christ is aware of the man. The man does not approach Christ. He doesn't ask him to heal him, which, which you know is so often the case. It, it's an instance in which somebody's not coming to him. He sees the man, but he also is aware that the Pharisees are watching and he knows what they're thinking. It's the Sabbath. And he knows if he cures the man on the Sabbath, they're going to get outraged. So he goes to the man and he heals him. And the Pharisees accuse him. And they do it because they want to catch him. They're trying to get rid of him. So we've got in both readings, Paul making an accusation that's right to make. And in the gospel, we've got the Pharisees making an accusation that's wrong to make. In one instance, somebody's doing something bad that they shouldn't do, and Paul's chastising them. In the other instance, Christ is, this is God. God bless. Um, he's healing somebody. He's doing it good. It's on the Sabbath, because, but because of that legalistic mindset of the Pharisees, they're accusing him. They're accusing God. He's the source of all their religious beliefs, and they're condemning him. So we've got two things in tension. Um, an accusation that's properly made, and an accusation that's improperly made. So here's my prayer. Help all of us, please, to have the courage to respond to problems, the things that people do that are not due, they shouldn't do. We live in a culture in which everybody believes they should be nice. People don't step forward. They don't want to make scenes. They don't want to be seen as being judgmental. So they don't do anything. Um, and um, um, so help us there to have courage to step forward, to be one with you in what we do. There are also instances when there's something in us that's Pharisaic, when we make something bad that isn't bad. Um, help us to see the many ways in which you're at work and to do everything we can to support it, particularly when it's not obvious. Everything in our reading has been pointed in that direction to help us see you at work on our world. So give us the strength to step forward 
to take a stand where there are wrongs being done and give us the humility um, and openness to move with you when you're doing something um, and not find a fault in it. Help us to do that. I ask a special prayer tonight for all of us, most of us anyway, with our vices, the addictions we have, the vices we hold, particularly um, particularly the obvious ones, drinking, eating, pornography, sex. Um, we are a troubled world today. Strengthen us in our efforts um, um, to put our sins away, whatever form they take. Um, having possessions, wanting too many things. Help us in all of those ways in which what we're doing is avoiding a cross. Give us the strength to put those things away so that we can be with you and bring you to all that we do. I offer this prayer from the depths of my heart for all of us. In your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, can you have me that? Um, the print. The print yeah. um, in the stuff that I sent you guys tonight, I, I think a couple of years ago we did a poem by W.H. Auden. Um, I was struggling to think about a, an appropriate poem tonight. He did a poem, I think, called The Death of Rope, and I was wondering if it would be appropriate for tomorrow's class because we're at Seton and we're doing Virgil. Um, I'm, not I'm, I'm not sure that I'm going to do it, but but I was taken back to a, a poem of his called Ore Canonicae, The Hours, The Canonical Hours. It's a beautiful poem. Um, and it's structured around the, the canonical hours of the monastic life. Um, hold on, sorry. Oops, okay. Wow. Um, I'm glad I did this. I need my notes. Um, um, it's... it's it's structured around the canonical hours, prime, terse, sex, nones, vespers, complin, lauds. And I'd like to read just a small passage from one of them. It's interesting, it was interesting for me to think about um, Auden tonight because Auden lived during that time that Hemingway lived. So when we're reading him, we're going back to that period um, when Hemingway went to Paris and was in Europe and had gathered together with all these figures involved in art and philosophy who were meeting in, in Paris. Auden knew all those people. Hemingway knew Auden. They'd met each other. And they're all a part of that, that community that we've been talking, when we were talking about when we did Emily, or Hemingway. That all of them had grown up at a time when the sciences had taken over the mindset of most people and the determinisms had set in. So man was this determined thing. He was a product of, of evolution, these biological forces, and all of those. We've gone through them, so I, I don't need to do it again. Auden was a graduate of an English university. I can't remember if it was Cambridge or, or um, Oxford. Very bright man. Very, very bright man. Just extremely bright. 
but it's clear when I look at his poetry that he was influenced by Americans. Because if you look at his poetry, it's not the poetry of a, of a Cambridge or Oxford graduate. It's the poetry of a man writing in a simple language. It's as simple as Robert Frost's language. Um, he, um, I've read his critical works, and I think he's one of the brightest critical minds of the 20th century. And I don't think many people read his poetry. He's not one of the, I think he's one of the top, certainly one of the top half dozen poets of the 20th century. He's an extraordinary poet, not often read. In this one particular poem, structured on the, on the hours of the monastic life, there's a particularly lovely passage in it. I want to read it tonight um, because what's at issue in Billy Budd is a death. Billy Budd's going to die. And his death is going to raise all sorts of questions, I think, for most of us. Um, people come down on different sides of that question. I don't, I, we're not going to be able, we're not going to get to it tonight. We're still going to be dealing with set up chapters, but it deals with death. Um, in his poem on the hours, there's a section in, in, um, in the section called Compline. Um, when, if, if you know the hours, they go through the day, early morning, noon, mid-afternoon, evening, and at the end of the day, Compline um, was a time set aside for rest, for the completion of the day. So in the monastic life, at that point when the monks or the brothers met, they would look back on the day with a sense of completeness and also aware of death. That was the focus of their of their meditations. And in this poem by Auden, he's looking back at the day as a poet with all of its distractions. And I'm Ask, I'm going to set it out this way, asking all of you to think about this poem when you end the day, because I'm sure, however important Christ is in your life, that I'm sure you get taken up with activities, parents, grandparents, grandchildren, work, business, you know, whatever it is that, that asks for your attention. In Compline, Auden's going back through the day with all of the distractions. He's a poet. He's trying to capture the word. And he structured it around the prayers of the monastic life. So it's a beautiful meditation through the day of what somebody thinking about his faith has to deal with. Okay? So it's in the box. It's on the website. You can go on. You can make a hard copy right now if you want. Just print it or just, or just listen. I'm not going to read the whole section because it's too long, but I just wanted to give you that background. Okay? So in Compline it begins... Now as desire and the things desired cease to acquire attention, as seizing its chance the body escapes section by section to join plants in their chaster peace, which is more to its real taste. Now a day is its past. Its last deed and feeling in should come the instant of recollection when the whole thing makes sense. It comes... But all I recall are doors banging, two housewives scolding, an old man gobbling, a child's wild look of envy, actions, words that could not fit any tale, and I fail to see either plot or meaning. I cannot remember a thing between noon and three. Remember Eliot's line in the Four Quartets, distracted by distraction beyond distraction, 
the way a day will take over our mind. Nothing is with me now but a sound, a heart's rhythm. He'll go on. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to leave it for you to read. But I want to get to the last part of it. It ends with this stanza. Okay. Can poets, can men in television be saved? It's not easy to believe in unknowable justice or pray in the name of a love whose name one's forgotten. Libera me, libera si, dear si. And all poor SOBs who never do anything properly. Remember, he's from an English world and propriety. <laughs> propriety means everything for the, for the British. And all poor SOBs who never do anything properly spare us in the youngest day when all are shaken awake. Facts are facts. And I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three. That we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide. Join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. So a day will come, a moment will come when all that chaos and confusion will crystallize and everything that seemed confusing and disordered and chaotic will come clear. There will be a meaning didn't see. Remember T.S. Eliot's talking about the pattern that will emerge in time, that we will see things another way, things that we missed. My question here just for a minute is, is it, what's he talking about when he says, um, and all poor SOBs who never do anything properly, spare us in the youngest day when all are shaken awake. Facts are facts. Nothing to escape then. We can't escape what is. And I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three, that we, too, may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. So what is the picnic, what is the perichoresis, and what's the abiding tree? Remember, this is Compline. It ends the day. It's to bring everything to a rest, to a completion, as one reflects over the day, but always with Christ's crucifixion in mind. So before we leave, I just want to take a minute. So what's the picnic? What's the dance? and the perichoresis and that abiding tree. What's he talking about? Anybody? Come on, Jeannie. I think he's talking about the end times when all are shaken awake in the youngest day would be like the the, the second coming when um, we all well, know all of our faults and failings even the ones that we couldn't remember and he's saying that he hopes that we will then be forgiven and able to go to the picnic which is like heaven, heaven enjoying eternity and the, the abiding tree would be Christ, I would think. The cross. I don't care, Caresis. That's a word I'm not yeah. familiar with. Boy, you are right on. Good for you, Jean. Wow. Good for you. Really good for you. The picnic is the banquet, except he's using a familiar, a familiar language, so 
I mean, it's wonderful the way he takes a colloquial language and moves it into um, um, you know an analogical uh, heavenly mm. order. Does anybody know the meaning of perichoresis? Mm. It's a word I've used before. Jeannie, shame on you that you don't remember. But, I mean, come on. What? You'd forget something after five years? What's the, <laughs> what's, what's the matter with you? <laughs> oh, God. It's only five years to hold on to. <laughs> and Faulkner in the middle of it. <laughs> Does anybody know what perichoresis is? We talked about it. <laughs> Carl, if you look that up, that's not fair. <laughs> no, that's not fair. You looked it up. Is that the turning? <laughs> what? Is that the turning? Um, no, I'm not annoyed at the turning. Yeah, no, I can't. No, the, the Carl, do you want to go ahead? What have you got? What have you got for us? Perichoresis is a term referring to the relationship of the three persons of the triune, God to one another. Yeah. Boy, I wish that were... I wish they would hit it better than... But, you know, it's... What do we... Um, the perichoresis describes the... The... Um, oh, Doc, can you... I screwed up the pages. Would you mind finding that? The perichoresis is the word that the um, Greeks used to describe the indwelling of the persons with each other. So what it really means is, we talked about it with Dante. You know, remember when Dante was going up the Paradiso and Beatrice was anticipating his thoughts? She already saw them before he knew or before he spoke them. And that happened with all the other characters. And we, and we looked at all those reflexive verbs where somebody said, um, I wish that I were in youing as you are in mean or in Godding, that there were all those reflexive verbs where it wasn't just knowing another as an object, that um, the, the communion in love is to take another into you, to be one with that person. So they were sharing in an indwelling that was exactly like the indwelling of the person. I mean, how could it be any different? If, if there's three persons in the Trinity, remember we went through that equation, one of... Two of them is not greater than one. And one of them is not less than two. They, one of them is the whole of the whole trinity itself. That's why they're all one God. So they perfectly indwell with each other, even if they're distinct. How important that notion is. That's the, the idea of love that a Catholic is called to in the Eucharist that we take Christ into us, he indwells within us, we indwell with him. So the dance of the perichoresis is the dance around the tree, it's the cross, it's the celebration of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and the perfect indwelling with one another, that whatever distractions, whatever it was that kept us from each other, will be gone. That in that moment, I mean, I thought, I thought Jeannie's description was beautiful. I mean, what, your way of describing it, Jeannie, I thought was really lovely. You know, that um, they are all there in this morning, in this morning, when all the sins are forgiven and people are one with each other. Did you have the perichoresis, is that it? Perichoresis isn't here. It's just the allergy. Yeah, it was, not because it's, yeah. Oh. It's in the conference. Hold on, you guys, sorry.
I'm not finding that. Where's the one here? So let me read this ending just once more. Um, um, and all poor SOBs who never do anything properly, spare us in the youngest day when all are shaken awake. Facts are facts. And I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three. Suddenly, the meaning of it, instead of all these disconnected things, will crystallize. They will come together. That we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide. Join the dance as it moves in perichoresis. So there will be a dance around. Now, remember, this is all metaphorical. I don't know that there will be a tree there. But it's a metaphor to describe the harmony, the, the dance, the poetry that will be heaven. That all people will dance. They will move in a dance in perichoresis, perfectly indwelling with each other in celebration of um, Christ's victory. So, I put that, um, just remember I put it, Dr. Kimes, can you straighten up the pages again? I'm sorry. I put that in our drop, so you've got it. Um, what in the world is this? Okay, any, any questions about that poem before we start? Or Billy Bud tonight? It's there in the box, so take a look at it and read it. And It's a long poem. It's got um, different sections for each one of the hours. So you might take one section a night and just go through it and go through the hours. It's a lovely, lovely poem. Okay, let's... No questions. Um, good to see you all again. Um, I hope everybody's taking advantage of the Labor Day break. I don't even know what that means anymore with things being the way they are, but let's start. Um, just a, a quick review of what we did last week. Remember last week I asked everybody to remember the um, Plato's Cave? Um, it was to me, it had a special significance last week because the artists who were growing up at the beginning of the 20th century, Hemingway, Auden, the others, and remember that um, uh, Melville just passed away just shortly before that time. So Melville is within recent memory to all those people. But all of them grew up um, under the influence of these new scientific ideas, and I think the mindset was nobody questioned them. It was science. So, of course, it was certain. So people turned to, to sciences for this kind of certainty they used to look to religion for. Um, they all seem to have evidence supporting them. I mean, that's all, all of it's been, so much of it's been disproved since then, but that was their mindset. So, so many of them grew up with this sense of determinisms, that man was nothing more than something on a chain of evolution and... and um, had been debased in his nature. I was asking everybody to remember Plato's cave because you remember, because I, I think that's a timeless allegory that according to that cave, it's only when you begin to question those things that you can come out of it. That if you don't, you're locked in those determinisms. They fix you. You're locked in the cave in prison. 
And so the, the, the question that I've been asking for so often is what's the key to unlocking that door, getting out? Um, and for Plato, it's questioning and wondering. Um, um, we talked about, we just quickly reviewed Hemingway's important themes, the tutoring, the art, um, the, the fact that the Marlin and, and um, Santiago were wedded in some ways, and the hunting, that all creatures were involved in um, a survival of whoever was most fit, so that in some ways human looked at themselves as inferior to animals. Um, but what they had in common, animal and human, was that they ate each other, feasted on each other, preyed on each other. And I, um, when we read Hemingway, I, the questions that I asked had to do with um, the, the ending. How do we look at Santiago when he comes out of that battle? Is he changed? And um, there were so many, or, or at least a number of allusions to Christ in the way that he was presented. I just want to present one more tonight that we hadn't gone over, just to give you one more to think about. Remember in all of Paul, or so many of Paul's letters, particularly the Corinthians, he, he says, um, I count all my gains as nothing. That all of the things that he's accumulated are as nothing next to Christ. It's in his letter to the Corinthians. That he takes his poverty as a gain because he's learned the real value of things. It's only when Santiago loses everything that he steps out of that male ego um, in which, particularly for men, I think, more and more for women who have stepped into the workplace, one has to prove himself or herself by outdoing somebody else, winning, succeeding, getting more than. So we make possessions um, more important than we should. It's been one of the great themes since we began our work because it was the fundamental theme of the Iliad, that a person's honor, his integrity as a man, depended on booty what other people conferred on him, the gifts, the accumulations. So one of the lines running from, you could say, from the Iliad to Old Man of the Sea has been that. Um, so we, we looked at, at, at that um, from a Christian perspective, and then we, um, and then we picked up Billy Budd. Um, just quickly, um, um, a couple of brief back background notes before we turn to the book tonight. Remember that Melville had written Moby Dick mid-century. I, I think he published it 1850-51. He didn't go back to um, narrative writing for 25, 30 years. Um, and I, it actually doesn't surprise me. Moby Dick is such an extraordinary accomplishment. I, I would have thought it would have exhausted him. Any man coming out of a work like that what do you do next? Um, that's a once-in-a-lifetime work. He took to writing poetry and didn't write narrative for 25 years, and then he picked up um, his pen again to write a story and wrote uh, Billy Budd. Billy Budd was not finished before he died, and it was discovered by his wife sometime afterwards, and she tried to finish it. She couldn't do it successfully, and it was put away and only discovered years after she died. And then it was editors, a number of editors, who, who turned their attention to it, who tried to work on it themselves to come up with a finished edition. That's what we have today. And 
it, it, it's not even clear that what we have is the authentic edition, but it's it's what we have. I want to I want to just read this note because it's it's Melville talking about his own efforts at writing. He said he always had a difficult a difficulty writing, but it was particularly difficult later. He said taking a book off the brain is akin to the ticklish and dangerous business of taking an old painting off a panel. You have to scrape off the whole business in order to get at it with safety. Um, so it's and it's I guess it's fairly clear. I haven't looked at the early manuscripts of uh, Billy Budd, but I have the sense that they are scrapings <laughs> that that Melville is trying to put together a book and and it left editors and publishers with real strong problems. But what we've got is the fruit of that work. We talked about the political background, what was going on in the world, the scientific revolution. Um, one of the interesting things for me, picking it up, I said this last week, that I had not anticipated was that so much of what we were looking at when we were looking at Eliot is exactly what was at issue when we were reading Brothers Karamazov. That all of these different philosophies were taking hold of men they were shaping the way men were looking at things, and all of them, the more important ones, were ideologies, particularly Marx. All the enlightenment, all the enlightenment ideas about um, turning away from religion, denouncing religion because it was superstitious, that reason was a power sufficient to itself. If it could only get religions out of the way, reason would be sufficient to make a good regime. And Marx was the crowning um, jewel of that sort of effort. And we know how influential he is still today. I mean, he, he's behind so much of the protests that go, um, that go on today. Marx believed that, that all, all warfares were class warfares between the, the oppressed and the oppressors, and it wasn't until um, the, uh, the oppressed would overcome the oppressors that they would come into a new world and make a new world, free of all oppression. So what Marx is doing is taking um, transcendent metaphysical realities, spiritual realities, divine realities, and attempting to bring them down into earth in a political form in terms of power. Um, but um, that was the background. The French Revolution was going on. Um, um, America had already broken from England, and on the basis of the principles that informed our revolution, France took up the same revolution itself and tried, attempted to overthrow the monarchy and finally did. And Napoleon wanted to extend that battle, and um, so the wars between France and England finally extended into all of Europe. That was the at-large political background, philosophic background, that's at work um, at the time that Melville's writing. The thing that I wanted to just remind you about today is that even if that's the larger backdrop of um, Billy Budd, the more immediate backdrop is what's going on in America. And I sent you those two um, addresses by Lincoln, the Lyceum and the Temperance Address. I, I, I think they're two of the most extraordinary things he's ever written outside of the, you know, the things that he wrote when he was president, the, um, the Gettysburg and the Second Inaugural. Or, 
But take a look at those two addresses because they're extraordinary. In one of them, in the Lyceum address, he's addressing the, the fact that lawlessness has become a condition in America. It's so widespread that he had to address it. And um, his major concern is that so much of, I mean, so many of the protests and violence that was going on in America were related to the slavery issue um, in the South and the North. And the level of violence had reached an alarming um, stage. And one of the concerns that Melville or that Lincoln had was that it was producing these leaders who who potentially were tyrants, who would play on the violence of people and actually um, increase it, and could possibly overthrow the government. I mean, it's, it's just. It's just hard to look at what he was facing and, and not see a foreshadowing of what's going on today. Um, in the temperance address, he was addressing a alcohol association and was supporting the efforts on the part of the association to bring in people who had been alcoholics themselves to take over the leadership because those people who were leading who were not alcoholics couldn't, couldn't really address the problem. They, they couldn't bring to it what somebody who was a recovering alcoholic could. And the underlying motive for his whole argument was that what was at issue in America was the creation of what he called this new man. It's built into the Declaration, that in the Declaration of the Constitution, America was set out to create a new kind of person. Um, clearly his image is in the Gospel from Christ. But to do that would require a new kind of regime, that all men would have to be treated equal, We'd have to see our fellowship with each other. We would have to learn to work together to get past slavery, to get past racial differences. We would have to learn to see each other equally as human beings because if we didn't do that, we wouldn't be able to succeed. So they're two of the more important addresses and, and both of them, interestingly, um, are preludes to the Civil War, everything that's about to happen. And it's during that time you know that, that Melville is writing um, um, Moby Dick, and it'll be 20, 25 years later before he does Billy Budd. But one of the interesting things I just wanted to ask everybody to hold on to when you're thinking about Billy Budd is this. You know from what we've read already that one of the concerns that Melville had and that Veer has got on his mind as a, as a captain of a warship is that two mutinies have taken place. So uh, soldiers who are enlisted in, in the service, they, they've enlisted to serve the government during a wartime. Hi, Julie. Um, so that um, men who have enlisted um, rebelled against the established order. What we've got today are young people rebelling against a police order with all their motives, but, but it, and it's not, isol it's not an isolated case dealing with an isolated person here. I mean, even though, even though there are instances like this, it's a general widespread movement against an established order, against the police. People are protesting an established law system. So one of the questions that I would just ask everybody to think about, um, stepping back from what's going on politically today is, Melville's dealing with a similar situation, very similar. There have been two mutinies. 
Um, I, I don't want to get ahead because I don't know where you are. Something's going to happen to Billy Budd here that's going to be crucial to understanding the story. But we've got a situation that in so many ways was parallel to what was going on before and is going on today. You've got people rising up against an established organization that was intended to enforce the law and violence has spread far more than I ever remember it, than I ever remembered in our history. So that in some ways I'm suggesting there, there may be something to learn from what Melville's doing in Billy Budd for us today, okay? Um, we, um, we talked about some of the things, I'm not gonna go into them because we'll pick up some of the things today. Um, um, two of the major themes, remember, was the universality of Billy's character, that Melville saw him as a representative of a natural goodness that we could find everywhere, in black men, in Africa, in Asia. And very often he makes it really clear that we're more likely to find it in a culture that hasn't given itself over to a civilized way of living. Because he makes clear that the minute you become a part of a civilized world and you put on a cloak or suit that those clothes begin to define you. So he's looking at this innate goodness and setting it off in contrast to a civilized world that begins to take on manners and forms and something happens that distinguishes those two classes. Okay. Um, Veer is an image of that. He's, he's well educated. He's reflective. He's thoughtful. The soldiers, the, sorry, the sailors are not. They're just not at all. They tend, to, they tend to just follow orders. But Billy belongs to that rare class of what he's calling the handsome, what do you call him, the handsome, <laughs> the handsome young man who is representative of a large class. And he, he, uh, there's a black man who, who has the same kind of qualities. So we're looking at something that's, um, that's, that's rare, but um, that we can find everywhere in the world, okay? Um, and one other theme that I just want to mention because it's going gonna, it's gonna to bear directly on, on what's coming up ahead of us. The theme that, that, I, that I called language, talking about words, and, and I, I wanted to keep that in two ways. Remember, we wouldn't have the story without a poet. It's only because the poet, in the way that he uses words, can bring this story to us. So the poet is the one who uses words to help us see things that very often we don't see very well. Billy's on the opposite end of that. Um, he can use words okay, but if he finds himself struggling with something in a difficulty, his response is to stutter. He can't find a word. It's as if his passions become so great that he trips on himself. So in, in the way in the way that language can help us deal with our situations, that way is closed down to Billy. Now let me make one more point on that before we turn to the chapters today. One of the beautiful things about language, those of you who remember the Odyssey should remember this well, you remember that in the middle of the Odyssey, Odysseus sits down to tell his stories. <laughs> I, Jolie, I'm getting hungry, just, just, just getting hungry. <laughs> You better send me one of those evening meals tonight before you go to bed. I will. I'm getting I will. hungry. Just meat. It's 
it's a meat substitute. Oh, stop, stop. Don't even tell me. I'm, I'm getting hungry. Just um, that Odysseus um, sits down in the middle of his, you know, in the middle of his adventures and tells his story. And he has to do that before he gets home. It's the last adventure he has. And I think one of the suggestions I made then is it's really important for who he is as a hero because when any one of us uses, this is what's one of the amazing paradoxes about language. Whenever we use language to describe something, it becomes a part of who we are and it also detaches us from ourselves. Right? This is so. It's outside of us. So language is this, I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I want to put this, I'm not even sure that I can do justice to it, because the old, you know, for me, the ultimate word is Christ. He's the source of all words. Then in the act of using words, we make it possible to put ourselves away, to detach ourselves. We become one with ourselves. So I'm saying, Jolie, I'm getting hungry just watching you. That, I, that's true. I'm not, I mean, I'm being facetious, but... But it's a part of me. I, it's I saying something to her. And it, it wasn't planned. It wasn't scripted. It just came out of my circumstances. I'm, I'm so fond of her that I can say that with humor and trust that she'll laugh with me. But it also dis, it detaches me from myself. It suddenly relates me to her. So words have this paradoxical power of, of somehow carrying us, vesting us in ourselves at a moment when we go out. Billy can't do that. That's the point I'm making here. Melville can. Melville was a seaman. All, all of his early novels, oh, Omo and the other, and so many of them, I, were all sea adventures of, of his stories at sea. And they were um, popular. I mean, they were very popular until he got Moby Dick and then he got serious and nobody read him. Um, but he knew, as somebody who was poetic, who loved to write. So it's interesting here that he's the poet using words to bring the story to us so that we can learn something from it. But its central figure is a figure who can't use words. If you got into the scene in which, I don't want to get ahead, so I'm not going to go into it. But if you got into the scene in which Claggart will accuse Billy, um, Veer tells one of the mates to bring Billy to his room and Billy and Claggart meet with Veer and Claggart will make his accusation. I don't want to go into this because I don't like giving things away. But that moment is going to be a difficult moment, more than difficult for Billy. Whenever he's faced with a difficulty, he can't find words to help him out. So what, what, however we look at Billy as this Adam, this innocent Adam, this beautiful, handsome young kid with all of these abilities. I don't think it's an accident that um, he can't use language. I think it's Melville's way of showing that anybody who lives in innocence, who has not learned to deal with the evils of the world, will not be able to use, deal with it until he learns to distance himself from himself. That is, until he learns to use language. That was true of Odysseus, it was true of Aeneas, it was true of Dante, it's true of every major figure we've read. Okay? Any, any questions? You all look 
All of you except Jolie look serious. <laughs> what are, we're expecting a meal. I, I was looking for the I, actually I was looking for the words and I just we're looking for a meal on wheels tonight, Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> I can hook you up. No. <laughs> you guys have any questions? I, Sue, you got a question. Go ahead. Yeah, I do. It occurred to me as you were talking that several people can't, in this story, can't use words effectively. Um, Claggart uses them in devious ways. Veer quotes literature but nobody understands him and he can say the words he's supposed to say i have read the whole book so i won't don't give anything away yeah yeah don't he, give can, he can he can carry out his duties just fine but when it comes to saying anything meaningful from the heart real he's not good at that so there are several people who don't use language well in this book not not just mr innocent um, yeah, let's wait because we've got to get okay. to Veer. Let's, because to to talk about this in any meaningful, we've got to wait till we get to the scene where Veer has to deal with this. And um, Gita, I just saw your name for a second, and then you disappeared. Come back. <laughs> can you? I don't know. Can you? Um, Bob, this is Kathy. Yeah, I can. Have a, a question. And you were talking about Billy Bud not having the language to um, express himself. Is that connected to the to maybe to the fact that he doesn't have the experience mm -hmm. to yeah, yeah. Um, you know to uh, to even assimilate what what you know he he hasn't had the experience. So there's there there are no words to. Uh, there's no experience to put to words. Yeah, yeah. What? What? Here, boy. That's a good point, Ken. Let me let me try to find a, a meeting point between you and Sue. Um, I wouldn't have said he doesn't. Wait. First of all, I wouldn't have said he doesn't have the words because he does. He he speaks words fine. He has no trouble speaking. When when he has difficulties, it's when he's facing a difficulty that he has no experience in dealing with. So, mm -hmm. right. but but I th I think the point that I want to underscore here, and I'm glad for Sue's comment and for your question too, both, is that I'm going to give away the I'm, I'm so reluctant to do this, but I think I'm going to be giving away something, and I don't want to do it. But let me put it this way: um, it's not that he doesn't have words; he's articulate. He he has no trouble talking. the The point that I'm making, and you guys are pushing it to a place I didn't want to get to yet, but but it's there, so. I think the problem is that what Melville's showing us is that in this state of innocence, you know, that we're seeing in Billy, um, be because that innocence is unreal, it's not real. Um, that's a word we use to describe something lacking. Innocent doesn't mean he's without guilt. Innocent means He's not experienced, he's not grown up, he's described as a boy, as a man, you know, as a man boy. What's lacking in that condition of innocence, this is going to get to our fight, I mean, I, I'm just getting ahead. So I don't, want to, I don't want to pick this up, I'm going to say this and then drop it if I can. It's this question of whether any of us can use words well 
without having gone through a cross, without having suffered. Because in that innocence, nothing threatens him. But when he has to deal with evil, and he's not had an experience with it, and he's not had to suffer from it, then it goes right to your point, Kathy, that when you've not been in that, when you've not been crucified, how do you find words to detach yourself from it in the moment when you're being crucified? So, and I, I'm almost sorry that I said that because it's almost good. But, I mean, it just, just so goes to the point that I think what Melvin is showing is that this innocence is really attractive and it's beautiful. But in some ways it's not real in a fallen world. Because we are in a fallen world in which evil exists. And one of the fundamental problems all of us have to confront all the time is learning to take responsibility for evil. To deal with it. To not avoid it. To not go around it. And if you live in innocence and suddenly it hits you, what do you do? Lots of people take the position of being victims. I mean, they will play that them lives. What happens when you have to go through a suffering in, in which you didn't feel, particularly if you didn't feel you deserved? And I'm getting, I'm getting away, because I'm, I'm pointing to the scene when Claggart and Veer and Billy meet, and I don't want to go there because it's not in our reading today. But hold on to those things, because it's, they go to this whole question of language and this stuttering, because lots, you know, when lots of people read this, well, like they do with lots of things, when you read they'll just look past it. They will give it a thought. He stutters. So what? I, I hope it's clear by now, by the reading that we've done, that writers don't do this stuff incidentally, that these things mean, they all have a meaning. Do we see them? Do we understand what's going on? Uh, one of the defining characteristics of Billy is this stuttering. Okay, we we get a um, a preliminary um, reading of it when the man approaches him to invite him to join a mutiny. Billy stutters when he responds. He can't find the words. The the guy, what the guy's suggesting is overwhelming to me. I mean, along your line, he just has not had experience. What does he do? I think what Melville is showing is that that state of innocence is not, however much we admire it and would like it, we're all fallen and, and can't assume that position without lying because none of us is innocent in the, in the other way. So innocence is one of those words that has an equivocal meaning and it has two meanings for us. It can mean not guilty, but it can also mean being blind and inexperienced and somehow out of touch with the world. Out of touch only in the sense that there's an evil there you're not dealing with. And we know, we know that so much about the modern secular world, particularly America. America does everything it can, particularly in suburbia, to distance itself from evil. It's an attempt to get back to the garden, to do everything we can to escape problems. So it's very much a part of the American character. Very much a part of the American character. Here, let's go on. Let's start. Because we're... Um, okay, I want to I wanna just... In the first eight chapters, we saw last week that what Melville was doing was um, setting up the story. So we were, we were getting the conditions for Billy's joining the um, Billy Potent. 
that he was drafted, he was impressed, um, and Billy willingly gave himself. It was something he glad he glad he was glad to do. And we got these character sketches. God, what are you doing, you? Um, what would you like? Oh boy, he, um, just hold on, Doc. Uh, um, sorry. Um, he, we got these character sketches of um, the men and the captain of the uh, Rights of Man and um, Claggard and, and uh, Vare. Um, and very little happened during that. It was pretty much a, um, a setup section. In this, um, hold on, I've got to visit with everybody. I, I, I don't know, something's, just can you visit, put yes. that away. What, is that, what are you doing? Can you, I'll be right back. Okay, he said he'd be right back and I should visit with you guys. I have no idea what he's doing. How's it going, Suzanne? Good, good. How are you, Jolie? I'm doing well. Hi, Karen. You look, you look good. Thanks. Thanks. What did y'all do today? Uh, housework, gardening, grocery shopping. I can go to the grocery store again. Yes. <laughs> Where did Carl go, Jeannie? I can't hear you guys. Jeannie, you're uh, still muted. Oh. He just went to turn a light on and get something to drink. Ah. like that. Ah. <laughs> Suzanne, I had a good time finding these notes. And I finally looked back at the, the place where you have the link to the session, the Zoom session, uh -huh. and found the link there. But I've been looking for them. For what, Doc? The notes. So now I have them. I mean, I, I think I can follow it again. Follow what, what notes? The, he was, she was looking for the notes that you keep talking about. Right. And she had a hard time finding them. Yeah. Do, you, do you have them now, Sue? Yeah. Online? I think I can follow the link again for both classes, but I couldn't find out. I, I thought you were talking about a different page. You go, Something you just... You, website and yeah. it wasn't. And Susan you go, said it in the... A very long time ago, in the link that had the Zoom. Yeah. But I had to go back to that and look again. Just so everybody knows, um, sorry, I had to turn the heat down because it's and get some water. It's just. Um, and I've I've got to catch myself here because I think I was too intense. Um, um, if you Google, if you go literature's prophecy one word to our blog site and go to the content page. If you go to the bottom, it's really simple. Go to the bottom of the content page and you've got a Lisbon and Seton and a Francis and the notes are there. I so. couldn't find it that way, but okay, it, it's fine. I've got it now. If there's, if there's any difficult, you guys write me an email and I'll, and I'll work with you on it then in an email, okay? Um, what I'd like to do now is just um, briefly summarize the next eight chapters and then take up a, some important th matters and and go to some of the themes again that, that we've been looking at. We won't get to the crisis until next week. And um, I think 
I think we can finish the book next week. We'll have to look at the crisis then and what happens with Billy and how, how that crisis is handled. But the summary of the next eight chapters is, is basically this. Um, after that first setup section, Billy's on board the Belly Potent. And um, can you guys mute yourself? Somebody's, somebody's not muted and we can hear you guys talking. Um, Billy sees his first punishment. And he's so frightened by it that it it makes him very self-conscious of what he's doing, probably in a way that he's not been before. Um, it makes him super conscientious about what he's doing because he doesn't want to get punished. And, um, and coincidentally, he finds that he's getting into trouble with the officers because of something concerning his bag and his clothes, his hammock and... You know, matters of tidiness probably more than anything else. He goes to an old man, a dansker, and asks him what his thoughts are because he's concerned. And the old dansker tells him that um, Jimmy Legs is down on you, referring to Claggart. And Billy's shocked um, because he has no idea why anybody would be down on him. This is getting to, I think, what's really at the heart of, of everything going on in this book, and I'll come to it in just a second. The next day, or sometime shortly after that, Billy's at mess, and because of a lurch in the boat, he spills his food on the floor, just as Claggart is going by. Claggart makes a incidental comment, as if nothing's going on, and Billy's response, like an innocent kid, is to exclaim, see, Claggart's not down on me, or Jimmy on um, legs is not down on me, and the people around him hear it, so does Claggart. Um, then Claggart, we learn that Claggart sets one of his men on Billy, a guy named Squeak, who, who's described as approaching Billy's life ferreting, you know, like a rat feeling things out. I think it's exactly the, the way Hawthorne describes Chillingworth, if you remember Scarlet Letter. The Chillingworth starts looking for faults. So it's another way of indicating that there is this, it goes right to our readings, one of the, the gospel reading in some ways today, that there's this tendency in humans to want to find fault in other people in order to put them down, to do something to put them down. Um, and then it's shortly after that that Billy's approached by this afterguardsman who bribes, tries to bribe Billy into joining a mutiny. And Billy stutters and finally finds the words. I mean, there it is again, Kathy. He struggles and finally gets the word to send the guy off, and the guy goes off. Um, and then he returns to the dansker again, and the dansker makes it clear in, in the sense of saying, I told you so, Jimmy Legs is down on you. So what we learn is that there's all this underground stuff going on involving Claggart in, in way some, some way trying to implicate Billy, get rid of him. Okay, That's it. Now that's an important thing to take note of here. Nothing happens. Oh boy. The only... God. The only event 
that. It's not that, Doc. Don't. I don't. Um, the, the only event that takes place, there are only two events and they're minor, nothing really happens, is that Billy spilled some mess, some food on the floor, and this guy in the evening tries to come up. Nothing of any consequence, apparently. Okay, now hold on to that. Now for a minute, turn to chapter 11. Because nothing's going on in the plot that seems to be of any importance. Um, and I just want to hold on to that because it's going to underscore what I'm about to get to in a second. But I want to look at the narrator here in chapter 11. You turn that light on, Doug. Because we've always talked about the importance of narrators and... This is in chapter 11, a couple of paragraphs into the chapter. Um, the narrator is setting, now remember, nothing's happening. So it's not like events taking over that a narrator, this is really important. It's not like events taking place so that a narrator, all he has to do is ex describe the events and it'll be sufficient for our interest to stay with him. There are no events going on of any real importance. The whole importance rests in what this narrator is saying about people. It's, it's a form of exposition. He's explaining, describing characters. He's setting Billy and Claggart off against each other, and um, in some ways Veer and Claggart, and he says in a couple paragraphs into 11, Now there can exist no irritating juxtaposition of dissimilar personalities comparable to that which is possible aboard a great warship fully manned and at sea. Because you're all, we're all, they're always at close quarters, always having to deal with each other, and the differences between them are going to emerge pretty quickly. There, every day among all ranks, almost every man comes into more or less contact with almost every other man. Wholly there to avoid even the sight of an aggravating object, one must needs give it Jonah's toss or jump overboard himself. You'd have to escape it the way Jonah did. But for the adequate comprehending of Claggart by a normal nature, these hints are insufficient because he's been trying to describe Claggart. Remember, Claggart had this um, problematic... We, we don't know much about his past. In that chapter where the narrator was telling us that so many of the men who were impressed came out of jails because they didn't have enough men to man the ships, they had to get them off the byways it's like Christ saying, go out and get anybody. They were picking men out of jail to man these ships. Claggart got on. Um, he was just a hard worker, but there was something about his um, poise and his calm and his use of reason that helped him to advance. Okay, But none of that is sufficient to get to his character, and now the narrator is going to try to get to it more closely. But for the adequate comprehending of Claggart, um, these ways are insufficient. To pass from a normal nature to him, one must cross the deadly space between. And this is done by indirection. I'm not sure where that quote comes from. It, I'm guessing it's from Milton or Shakespeare, but I'm not sure. Long ago, an honest scholar by my senior said to me in reference to one who, like himself, is now no more, he was trying to describe something. He said, yes, X 
is a nut not to be cracked by the taps of a lady's fan. You are aware that I am the adherent of no organized religion, much less of any philosophy built into a system. Well, for all that, I think that to try to get into X, enter into his labyrinth, and get out again without a clue derived from some other source than what is known is as knowledge of the world um, is hardly possible. What he's saying is very clearly, at least of some people, but I think we can extrapolate out and say most people, it's almost impossible to get to know people without some experience. Um, and even then, we, not be, we may not be able to know them as we should. Why, said I, X, however singular a study to some, is yet human, and knowledge of the world assuredly, assuredly applies the knowledge of human nature, and in most cases of its varieties. Yes, but a superficial knowledge of it, serving ordinary purposes. But for anything deeper, I'm not certain whether to know the world and to know human nature be not two distinct branches of knowledge. Go down. Nay, in an average man of the world, his constant rubbing with the blunts with it blunts the finer spiritual insight indispensable to the understanding of the essential in certain exceptional characters, whether evil ones or good. That is to try to pre try to penetrate evil or even grace working in a person. Not easy. In matter of some importance, I've seen a girl wind an old lawyer about her little finger. Or was it the dotage of senile love? So this wasn't an old guy losing it. This is a probably a guy's in the in the the height of his career, intellectual, capable intellectual, of being wrapped up by some sexy little girl. Nothing of the sort, but he knew better than he knew the girl's heart. Coke and Blackstone hardly shed so much light into obscure spiritual places as the Hebrew prophets, and who were they? Mostly recluses. So the kind of knowledge that we're talking about right now goes to spiritual depths that even experience of the world doesn't get you to. Um, at this time, my, my inexperience was such that I did not quite see the drift of this. It may be that I see it now. And indeed, if that lexicon, which is based on Holy Writ, were any longer popular, one might with less difficulty define and denominate certain phenomena, phenomenal men. As it is, one must turn to some authority not liable to the charge of being tinctured with the biblical element. He's going to... So, here's the narrator, the narrator acknowledging his own inexperience in dealing with these things and saying that even um, a grasp of Scripture is not going to help him in this matter. Because you can grasp principles in, in Scripture and not see them or be able to apply them in the particular instance. In a list of definitions included in the authentic translation of Plato, a list attributed to him occurs this, natural depravity, a depravity according to nature, a definition which, though savoring of Calvinism, by no means involved Calvin's dogma as to total mankind. Evidently, its intent makes it applicable but to individuals. Not many are the examples of this depravity which the cows in jail supply. See, depravement all the time. At any rate, for notable instances, since 
these have no vulgar alloy of the brute in them, but invariably are, denominate, are dominated by intellectuality, one must go elsewhere. Civilization, especially if it of the austere sort, is auspicious to it. It folds itself in the mantle of respectability. And we know from all the descriptions that the kind of evil that he's talking about is usually cloaked under poise, rationality. It's like Iago. He clearly had Iago in his mind on this. Iago moves through that. Remember, it's a, it's a Venetian world. It's, everybody's well-educated, they're articulate, they're sea, they're wealthy, they're comfortable. Iago moves through that world undetected. So very often evil is most effective when it takes the guise of those things that are most respectable. It's where the intellect can do its greatest harm. So he's not talking about savagery, brutality. He's not talking about anything animal. This is intellectual evil. It's demonic. Because remember, angels have no bodies. Satan's sin was intellectual. It was not physical. So the gravest danger for men has always been intellectual pride. A Luciferian kind of pride. So he's disguising something that he, he tends to see more prominent in civilized circumstances. It's less present in men who are given to their physical bodies. Um, and we can see that with Claggart because Claggart moves around in this world after Billy spills his mess. Remember, Claggart smiles and walks by and then we get this picture of a smile that nobody sees. He keeps it invisible, he's cunning, he's shrewd, he uses people, he manipulates, he uses his power for himself, but all of it's hidden behind clothes, behind respectability. Um, so I, I just wanted to briefly touch on the, on the narrator here for a second. So in the narrator we, we learned that um, it's as if this experience of Billy has, has awakened him in some ways, that there are things about this situation that he was too inexperienced to understand at some point, and, um, and, and seems um, to have learned to see with more depths as he's gone along. But I wanted, there's one passage, I want, one more passage I want to read before I leave him. On just at the very end of chapter 11, he says, the point of the present story turning on the hidden nature of the master of arms, that's Claggart, has necessitated this chapter. He's, he's gone into it a little bit in more depth, and he gives this description of this fire burning in the center of Claggart's soul, like a smoldering fire. Um, 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 it is protective, protectively secretive, which is as much to say it is self-contained, so that when, moreover, most active it is to the average mind, not distinguishable from sanity, and for the reason above suggested that whatever its aims may be, and the aim is never declared, the method and the outward procedure are always perfectly rational. I want everybody to stop and think about this. If, if Satan is intellectual pride, if his sin is intellectual pride, and he's was the brightest of the angels, the most intellectual. 
then he would be most protective of himself in intellectual circles. He would hide there because the damage he would do would rest in his intellect, deceiving, using. Um, so the narrator is saying here that whatever is going on underneath those clothes and his manners, um, on the surface it all seems perfectly rational. Uh, wait, wait, let me just finish. Wait, let me, oh, hold up, Sue, just one second. The point of the present story, turning on the hidden nature of the Master at Arms, has necessitated this chapter. With an additional hint or two in connection with the incidents at the mess, the resumed narrative must be left to vindicate, as it may, its own credibility. So the, the narrator is saying something about himself through this chapter, that he began somewhat inexperienced, he's learned, but he's going to let the story speak for itself. Um... We're going to have to see what the story says about what goes on between Claggard and Veer and Billy. Let me stop there because I want to. Um, I want to go. I want to talk about the technique. But for Sue, did was it you? Did you have a question? Go ahead and talk about the technique because it's the technique I had a question about. All I wanted to say on that matter is this: it's really interesting for me. All, all of you who've been struggling with the language, and I'm guessing everybody has, not just Linda, because Suzanne and I are looking up words all the time. Um, um, I, I don't want to pass that by. You know that last week I said what I believe is something really important for all of us to know about America, and that is it's, it's at this time that America is learning to distinguish itself from England after the Revolution, and poets are learning to talk in their own language. Melville's language is still very English in its tenor, its spirit, um, its method, very articulate, very formal, very elaborate. Um, I, I would say a lot of it's overwriting. I'd, I'd like to take the story and rewrite. I'd like to keep Melville's language and clean it up. Because for hold on, not because, not just because it's annoying. Because I'm sorry that this book isn't read more by high school kids, and I'm afraid that it isn't because of the language, and that really bothers me. Because if 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 somebody could just clean it up a little bit, and make it more accessible, it would be more widely read, and I think it's, a, it's an important book to read. But anyway, the, the technique is the opposite of Hemingway's. Hemingway could not be more simple or bare. And Hemingway only shows you the tip of the iceberg. We've talked about that. Um, what Melville does is show us the iceberg. It's all there. Now keep that in mind in this sense, because this is really what's important in my mind. Hemingway just gives us the eye for only the incidental details and dialogue, for the most part. Melville's development rests largely on exposition. He keeps describing a person, his dress, his manner, his psyche. It's expository, with very little attention to what's happening. Very little's going on. But I think here's the point, and it's really important to see it. What he does is um, present a whole world of spiritual realities um, in the way they're oriented towards envy. And there are some who make the argument, I mean, I, I think Satan's two great sins were pride and envy, and I don't think you could separate them. 
Um, and you know how important they were for Dante. Those are the two critical sins of the modern commercial regime. The, the motive that's most attributed to Claggart is envy. He hated Billy because of his beauty and good looks, his, the ease with which he did things. It says he could have loved him if it hadn't been for his envy. Um, so what, we're, what Melville is doing is describing a whole order of realities, political, spiritual, to fill out um, a world in which this drama is taking place involving Billy and uh, Claggart. I want to put it that way because it reminds me a little bit, I, mean, I think this will clear up some as we move through the story when we get to the end of it next week. It's a little bit like watching the world in which Christ was present, particularly with Herod and everybody around him. Everybody's in their own world. The soldiers are ignorant of everything. Melville calls them juvenile. They don't grow up. They just give obedience until they get angry enough to revolt. But they have no concern about what's going on. Old Dasker um, feels for Billy, but the narrator makes it clear he's not going to do anything to get himself involved. So Melville is laying out this whole world in which everybody, we get a sense of a larger world involved, um, but none of it's aware of what's going on with Billy. So nothing's going on, and yet a lot of spiritually is described to us. So we become aware that this great drama is unfolding with all these people involved, and yet none of them are connecting with this drama. It reminds me a little bit of what happened with Christ. A larger world going on, a lot of people involved, directly, indirectly, um, carrying a cross, going to the cross, um, some deeply concerned, but it's, it's essentially Christ and Herod, and, and later it will be Pilate, but it's Christ and Herod in this confrontation, just as it will be with Billy and Claggart and Veer. It'll be a Christ figure. So, it, to me, it, it, it's, a, it's something of a contrast to Hemingway. Melville makes clear this large world, we keep getting things filled out, and in the center of it, something's going on, we're not quite sure what it is, not a lot of it is visible. A lot of it is going under. It's what, what, what the narrator calls this underworld of what Claggers put in motion. We don't see it. But at the center is something strange going on involving this young kid who has no awareness of any of this. None. He's innocent. Meanwhile, there's this evil guy doing everything he can, and we don't even know all of what it is until we get to that scene when Claggart comes into Veer's room and confronts Billy. I mean, that will be the crisis, what, what we'll get to. But I just wanted to point that out, that it's very different from Hemingway. If you go from Hemingway, you go from somebody presenting things very simply, the tip of the iceberg, we're left to um, explain things on our own. Melda does a lot of explaining around things, but he leaves this central drama involving Billy and Claggart. Um, he treats it sort of barely. Nothing happens. I mean, really, think about it. Nothing happens. Billy spills something. Claggart walks by, smiles. That's it. Billy goes to Dankster again and says, what's going on? And Dankster is the one who has to say, Jimmy Legs is down on you. Billy can see none of it. We don't see. We're only made aware of little bits of it. But something is going on that's invisible to us. 
So it's an interesting contrast to, to um, Hemingway. Sue, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, well, like, I was slightly offended by the fact that Melville didn't trust that I was smart enough to see some of that and had to diverge into a thousand or more words to, to set things up. I, I was, I loved this book past where we are talking about tonight. I thought it got to be a marvelous story. Wow, yeah. But the narrator, way too much time, and didn't help. I mean, it was, I thought, it was obvious. And you've talked about reading things, and I didn't think he left anything to the necessity of the reader to read it. Or understand it. Yes. So I was slightly offended as a reader. I thought Melville's writing in Moby Dick was so much, fun, <laughs> oh, Sue. and so much just less worrying. I I don't know what to say except I'm sort of laughing. But I, I'm gonna I'm not even gonna comment on those things because I. But tell me why you love. Give me the positive side of that. Why did you? What's wonderful about it is, where, what Melville shows us, and it's so contrary to the modern world. Whatever's going on between these two individuals involves a world so much larger than them and we wouldn't understand the implications of it if we weren't shown that world. Hemingway does none of that. Hemingway will never take us there. No, okay. Wait, wait, and before you go on, Aunt, I wonder, why do you love it before, because I don't want to lose that. Why do you, why did you, what do you love about it? The story is magnificent, but I could have predicted a similar outcome without all of the narration in between. I needed the background of the boat of the ship, of the conscription to come on the ship, of some of the characters. But authors do that all the time without lecturing at me about how I'm supposed to think about stuff. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. Put your pride away and enjoy the damn book. <laughs> you know what it is. I just... Linda, who's that friend next to you? I, that guy I haven't seen. Who is that guy next to you? I want that. <laughs> oh, what is that? What's that? That's the echo. Oh, some I can. It, can everybody turn the sound off for a second? Oh, good. Tom, because it's I, so good to see you. Thank you. What I wanted to ask you about. Damn it. It looks like that's from you guys. I don't know. What, when you were talking about that right now. Goodness, damn it. I don't know what that is. What I was trying to get to was that if you said the area. What is that? Something on top. I, it's got to be with you guys. I don't know what it is, Tom. I can't help. Yeah, can you be closer to the microphone, Tom? I don't think that helped. Okay, Tom, try again. No, it's coming from you guys. You can try. Can you hear me? I can't softly. Can say it softly. Stay back. Stay back. Stay back. Say it softly, because I can hear you. What I was trying to understand 
is that the, the narrator is is Melville, right? Is he not? He's the author. Tom, do me a favor. Stay back. Stay back, because I think you get close. Yeah, and keep talking, because it, it's better when... Okay. If he is the narrator, and he's describing, you know, Kriker, uh, um, and he's giving us hints of what's who he really is. Right. Um, it seems that he has an acute sense to what I, what we did is we we listened to the book being read. Yes. And that is very helpful because the words you don't get stumbled over the words. Right. You really get a sense. Right. Of how incredibly deep he is about characters. Right. 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 It's refreshing and terrifying. Yeah, I, boy, I could not agree more. It's scary to me. I mean, I, this is funny. It's it sometimes frightens me to see how acutely, finely sensitive he is to spiritual evils. And I don't think he could do it without. I'm going to put you and Sue together at lunch sometime. <laughs> but I, I just know that. After he wrestled with Moby Dick and Ahab, he really knew what evil was. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Yeah. And so he has, if you know that story, you know he's pointing at something that's deeper than the whale. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. So good, so good, Tom. Right on. Let me let me take a second here before I go to the next thing. Because you're touching on a, a real importance, I, I wanted to get to this. But if for a moment all of you could take a second, I want to go. I'm going to ask a question here that that may derail us a little bit, but I'm going to risk it. Go back to Moby Dick for a second. I'm going to I'm going to mute you all again. I don't know what's going on, but pardon me if just I'm going to mute you. Um, where's mute? In the right hand corner, I think. Mute. I don't know what's happened, people. Up in the right corner, there's a mute button. See if this doesn't help for a while. If all of you would think back for a second to Moby Dick, um, remember a couple of things. Ahab's wrestling. I want to. I want to get to that. I want to. I passed it over, but I because we're we're setting up for next week and the climax next week. In Moby Dick, remember that the story was about Ahab's quest. That Ahab grew up under this Calvinistic world, this black-white, you know, some are saved and some are damned. It's the fundamentalist world of America. Baptist, Presbyterian, and all sorts of other. But people are encouraged to grow up with these black-white mindsets that some are saved and some are not. And generally because they're encouraged to, to root themselves in their own faith, private faith, um, nobody can argue with them. They can never be anything but right because they're saved. They're among the saved. So reason becomes abstract and black-white. It's it just because one of the qualities defining the American character. Ahab is, is roiling against that tendency. I mean, in some sense, he's like an embodiment of somebody, of something in the American character struggling against this horror. 
Um, and remember that he, his power comes from his appeal to people who have suffered. Now think about what's going on today and the, the appeal to people who have suffered and the power that that gives politicians, demagogues, who are going to play with it. When you watch what's going on with Ahab and the power that he has over people, it's really interesting to see what Melva does with it because what he shows is that none of the mates, not Starbuck, not, not any of them, Starbuck and the other two mates, none of them can answer Ahab. Starbuck is a, is a, is a man of moral rectitude. He's a product of that Puritan world. Um, he's strong, he's stern, he's, he's, he's full of convictions. Um, but he's not capable of dealing with it because it's spiritual evil. Um, remember, the Protestant world by that time has, has declined into a moral code, right and wrong. The sacraments are gone. The sense of the sacred or the mysterious or the holy or a sacramental character to love, that's gone. Starbeck cannot resist him. He, he's an image of something civilized that's become incapable of dealing with Ahab. Tom's comment, I think, just got to it, I mean, beautifully, I thought, a second ago. Um, none, of the, none of the mates can, and none of the harpooners, Quig and Dago and the others, because they're, they are images of the natural goodness we're seeing in Billy. They have this natural goodness, but they have no concept of evil. They can't deal with it. None of them can deal with evil. Um, Ishmael, remember, is drawn into that quest, and he gradually dissociates himself. He learns to love. He learns to see the goodness in the world, in creation. And he starts meditating. We get all these meditations on the how intelligible, how full of meaning everything in creation is. It's, it's pretty amazing to watch him grow. When the ship goes down, Ishmael's the savior, he's the only survivor, and he comes back to give us this message. Now keep that in mind, because I, what Tom said, I think, goes so directly to the point. Elville's, um, Melville's not talking about a whale. He's showing a man whose envy is so great that it wants to hurt goodness. It wants to take it out, to destroy it. It's the nature of evil. It sources Satan. We've seen the image of it, of it. We saw it in Ahab. We saw it in Iago. We've seen it in Chillingsworth. Here we're seeing it in Claggart. But the object of it is this goodness in nature. So it's not Ahab striking out at a thing that he wants to make bad that isn't. It's this natural goodness. So it's a very, very different story. But it's clearly a story in which the author has learned to see the nature of evil at work in the world. And I think one of the reasons that I'm so glad we're doing this right now is because of the, the political background in which Melville sets this. Mutinies, lawlessness, violence. And it goes to the point I made a, a while ago. If you watch what's going on in America today, you've got all these people protesting and acting violently, but protesting against law and order. Um, I don't, have, I, don't want, I don't want to get into a political debate here. There's not a question that some policemen do something wrong. But um, it's not just going after some policemen. It's calling into question the whole place of law and order in a world. So the degree of lawlessness that we're suffering from right now is greater than any that I'm aware of, even during Lincoln's time.
So the question here is, what is Melville showing us at this point? And I, so it's just a way of, of trying to add on to what Tom was saying a second ago. Um, so here's, I've got um, just a couple of questions. One of them is not going to, I don't know if it's going to go to the theme or not, but I've got to ask it because of the catechetical nature of our class. So hold on. We get Meals on Wheels, Jolie, and I'll send you a bottle of wine. How's that? Good, okay. <laughs> I want a snapshot of that. I want a snapshot of that picture of you. God. Okay, hold on. Hold on, you guys. Um... Twenty-six, twenty-seven. All right. So you're okay with a meat substitute walnuts? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. God, do I love you guys. God, I so hope for the day that we can get back together again. Okay, I've got I've got a couple of questions. Um, I think I asked them at the notes that I gave you guys online, but let me. Um, one of them's here. Yeah, I've got a couple. I, you know that. You know um, how seriously I take our text. That I do. I try to do everything I can to keep out of politics and to be careful about anything catechetical because my whole effort is to try to read a text to see what's there. Um, the whole reason for doing this is to see if we can't find Christ there. But but I can't go to him. I can't go to an abstraction. I have to deal with the work because my hope is that if we learn to see that well and we find Christ there, our eyes are opening. And so anyway, but this question's <laughs> going to put me on a spot. So, so here. In that passage that I read a while ago in which the narrator is talking about um, Claggart, the narrator says this. He says he has to go outside of Scripture to get a better read on this man. He needs other help. He refers to Plato. Remember, this is on... In, it's a couple of paragraphs in on, on chapter um, 11. He's quoting Plato... And, and just so those of you who may not know Plato well enough, I, I've said this before, that I think Plato's behind the Protestant Reformation, and Aristotle has been the sort of foundation of Catholicism from the beginning. It runs through from him to St. Tom, Boethius, St. Thomas. And, but Plato's understanding um, of the world and of man was that nat nature, material nature, is inferior or degraded. The body is not a good thing. Um, and he says the body is a prison house. That's his word. That there's a depravity in, ma in man. For Plato, it can only be overcome through the mind, through the intellect. 
it, I, I, I don't want to pass this stuff over because even, even though it may seem scholarly and I, I've got to do this anyway, so be patient with me for a minute. Remember we talked about this when we did the um, Catholic Reformation section a, a year ago. Plato believed that the most important thing for man was knowing the truth. There's an implicit denial of free will in that position. That's really important. There's an implicit denial because what, Pla what Plato is saying is so long as we know the truth our will will be good. It's only because we don't know the truth that our wills are bad. He said that there, man suffers from an innate depravity. His answer to it was the intellect, to know the truth. We know that that's not truth. The highest intellect that God created was Lucifer's. He saw the truth. And we know that we can know the truth and not do it. I know, I'm assuming everybody, I know it's wrong to steal. I knew it was wrong when I was a kid. I still stole. I know it's wrong to do other things. I still do them as a man close to my death. That knowing something isn't always sufficient to doing it. The, the problem is getting our wills and our minds together to make, to make our wills to make our wills better. Getting straight in our head is Freud. Getting straight in our head is not going to make our wills better. We still have to do things with our wills. Okay, right. here's, here's, so with that background, sorry, but here, here's the question. In 11 he says, Plato, natural depravity, a depravity according to nature, a definition which is the savouring of Calvinism by no means involves Calvin's dogma as to total mankind. Evidently, its intent makes it applicable, but to individuals. Not penny are the examples of this depravity which the gallows and he says invariably. Remember, I read, I read it a while. It'll it'll show up in civilization under the cover of the guise of respectability. But here I've got a I'm going to go to two questions that that, and the only reason I'm asking them is because we're still at a midpoint. That I've got to ask broader questions. The real questions are going to come next week when we deal with the crisis when what happens to Billy is going to happen and it's going to lead to the end of the book. So that's where the serious questions come in. But meanwhile, I've got to ask this question. Calvin believed that all men were depraved. All men. The consequences of the fall were complete. When we turned from God, we became corrupt. Everything in nature was corrupt. Milton, all corrupt. Everything. That was a fundamental position of the Reformation thinkers. Wycliffe, Calvin... Luther, all of them held that doctrine. Man has lost his free will. He's utterly depraved. It's only by the grace of God that he can be saved. We know that the Catholic Church does not hold that position. It holds that we were wounded with concupiscence, and that concupiscence is so strong that it can overwhelm us, that sometimes it can lead us into sin even when we don't want to commit a sin. We saw the evidence of that in Dante, because remember in Dante, Aristotle and Plato and all the, uh, all of the uh, virtuous pagans were at the top of hell. It was the level of the virtuous pagans. They weren't being tormented. They weren't suffering. They were good men. But they did not have faith, hope, or charity. It was a place of darkness. It's the way the Catholic Church, Dante, has of showing 
that men can be good and not be punished because they're actually virtuous. But natural virtue is not enough to get to heaven. That's the Catholic position. Okay? Is everybody clear? Now here's my question. Calvin said all men are depraved. Melville is saying, he's quoting, remember, and I, so to go back to Tom's point a while ago, um, in Moby Dick, Melville is presenting us with a character who's struggling against Calvin's notion of depravity and predestination. He hates the idea that he has no free will, that how demeaning that is to a human being, that he's created and there are these demonic forces in the world um, over which he can't control, but he wants to strike back at them because they hurt him. And we know that the end, he finally um, um, suffers from that. And he, he denies everything, he throws away his instruments, he goes after the whale, even against all the advice of everybody, and at the end he's strapped on on that line, and um, the whale takes him down. So he, he never, he, he may have some recognition, but there's no sense that I can recall that it led to a change in him, that he goes down with that. Okay. So it's never overcome except in Ishmael, who learns to love. Um, here we've got a story of Claggart, whose envy is so strong that it, it makes him go after Billy and to want to hurt him. Um, and in Melville's description of Claggart in these sections that we've been looking at, in this one particular one, he says, natural depravity may not follow along Calvinist lines, it may not exist for everybody, but it can exist in certain individuals. And here's my question to all of you, and, it, and it, if you know me, you know that I rarely, this is one of the few times that I can ever remember going outside a book but I'm doing it now. I, I'm not comfortable. But what, what, are, what are the implications of that for anybody to take... Let's leave Calvin out of it because he's denying you know, total depravity. But he's saying that there are some people who are born depraved, which means there are some not. Wait, so what's your response to that? What are the religious implication or human implications of that position anybody Jody go ahead did you want to don't raise your hand just come on I don't, I don't know if y'all have have uh, read or seen perform the play the bad seed but that was one of the first plays in I think eighth grade speech class that somebody performed and I went <gasps> you know just a completely murderous like seven-year-old girl who looks you know completely convincing as an innocent and killed one of her friends and and I thought that was the first time I ever encountered the thought that um, someone could just be completely 100% bad and so I you know I had never considered that before because I had considered sin nature but I know everybody smiles at babies and thinks they're innocent and so you know, I, I was trying to put that together even back then. And so um, that was when I first encountered the concept of the of a bad seed, a person who was just, you know, yeah. I don't know if it's possessed, I don't know if it's controlled by the devil, I don't know if, you know, I don't know what the, you know, if 
what they're surrendered to. But um, but that's the first time I considered that someone could be a bad seed. We've got to make. We've only got five minutes because I'm trying to hold the time. But in, what anybody else quickly? Uh, this is really important to me and to the story. What are what are the implications of that belief? Anybody? Karen, you've got some thoughts. Carl? Are you talking in terms of our relationship to God or our relationship to... No, I just, I'm just asking what your response is generally out to, to what, what it does for our understanding of us as human beings. Carl, did you have something? Yeah, predestination. Can you elaborate on it? I mean, go somewhere with it? What do you do? Well, if someone is born that way, it implies that that's the way they are. That's, that's not what we're taught. Like their, their name's not written in the book of... Carl, let me go back to you if I can. Carry out the implications of that. Why, why does a Catholic not believe that? If you believe that, what are the implications? What does that say? You don't have free will. And what does it say about God? Also, it says that we're not created in the image. We're not all created in the image and likeness of God. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah. Wait, just, I mean, because I, 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 nobody's jumping on this. I thought you would all jump on this, but because this, for anybody to believe that somebody is innate depravity, innate depravity, and by the way, um, if you so, I'm going to make a general. You can now we can get into a political argument here and a psychological discussion because we're getting outside the book, and this is where I did want to go, but we're here. Um, there are lots of Stephen King, major writers, movies coming out all the time showing children born or in the first or second year demonic, suggesting that they were demonic at birth. So Calvin's notion of innate depravity has carried over. I'm going to take a position here and let you guys disagree with me or whatever you're going to do. For anybody, I mean, Kathy just hit on it, for anybody to believe in innate depravity makes God a murderer. It means, because, because we believe that no human being can be born without an immortal soul. The immortal part of it comes from God. So when a man and woman join and create a human being, the immortal part of it, go back to Dante when he did this in the Purgatorio, talking about the body and the way it came into existence. No human being can be born and have an immortal soul without God's action in that conception. That's why we believe in life from conception. Lots of people don't today. Lots of, peop lots of people believe in innate depravity. If, if, if they do, it implicitly assumes a God who is bad, capable of making evil. That's absolutely Calvinist. Now, the implications of that are, I mean, think about the pregnancy. It means you can get rid of a pregnancy. You've got a reason for getting rid of a pregnancy because if the baby's not going to be the way you want it or it could be evil. So if you start with that, you're already confusing the notion of life at conception. And the implications of that we have seen carried out in one of the worst holocausts in history. Millions of babies are being killed every, every year. So this notion didn't come out of, I mean, their Tyre, Carthage, 
lots of the ancient regimes practice infanticide. They killed kids. I mean, that's just what. America looks at itself as a civilized nation, but the number of abortions is far greater, I think, than any of the, um, those ancient regimes practiced. Where did that come from? The belief in innate depravity as a as a has a major role in the American character. It's a part of who we are. It's not uncommon, God, to see these movies come out treating these kids demonic. Where did demonism come with? If it came, if it, if the child was depraved at birth, innately, it implies a dark God. That was Ahab's problem. We believe if depravity comes, it comes somewhere later because God made nothing that wasn't good. Now, what came into it, I don't know, but hold on, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 hold on, please. God made nothing that, except, God made nothing that wasn't good. So, for a person, for anybody, a movie maker, somebody writing a book, to show a demonic child means something happened between conception and, you know, do they ever explore it? Rarely, they assume that demonic character, is it's left unquestioned so that go and the audience is asked to accept it and what it does is reinforce this belief that children can be demonic they're not innocent Stephen King is I mean he I, I, I don't like him I don't watch his movies because of the same thing but there are so many inf people who are influential in the literary and artistic and world of celebrities that that hold on to those notions and the practical effects of them are are sort of amazing when you watch what's going on in our world. But anyway, I just wanted to to bring this out um, because it, it, you know, Melville. I'm I'm, part, I'm partly joining in with Tom. I hope he's still with us here. Um, Melville was dealing with that in a major way in Moby Dick. He's still dealing with it here. That one of the differences he it seems to me philosophically, <clears throat> he's trying to isolate it. It's his way of explaining Claggart. But I myself personally, apart from the book, have real problems with that for the reasons I've given. If you trace that out, you've got an incoherent starting point. I mean, it, it gives you a very dark look of God. And it's one that I don't think squares up with Scripture. So, but... Any, well, any other... Go ahead. Bob, yeah. Even in the movie The Exorcist, the little girl... Uh, that they got uh, evil out of that I mean was redeemed um, the girl and it, was, it wasn't her choice to disobey or to be you know have and dwell her but it was removed from her and she was redeemed yeah so yeah you know I don't know if Melville is but um, it it does it does strike me that you said you know, that assumes that God is bad if he, you know, from the beginning says someone's bad and can't be redeemed. Um, you know, that, I mean, one of the, one of the, I mean, I, this, we can go a lot of places with this, but just because you're mentioning it, you know, that there were a number of scenes in the Bible where Christ um, exercises the demoniac. I mean, he, he sends the, he says, come out. And the, and the person who is possessed by demons is recovered. You know, he's good. So, um, I mean, it goes right to your point. It doesn't mean that by nature the guy was, some point in his life, who knows when, demons took hold of him. But um, Christ, 
if it were innate, how do you get, well, I mean, a Protestant would say grace will, you know, but, but Christ did exercise those demons. He did get rid of them. And so I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing with this idea of innate depravity because it's a way of explaining Claggart. And I take Claggart seriously because I think he's a, a really faithful image of, of a person who's take, overtaken by envy and who does everything he can. I'm, I'm really at unease with the, with the motives, efforts to explain where that comes from. That, I, I just think it's really important to be clear on differences between the Protestant and Catholic world on that issue because they're fundamental. So you think it's psychological, not spiritual? No, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I believe evil, evil is spiritual. I think I think myself. I think all of us have psychological disorders. I think you know how deeply they go into a spirit, take on a spiritual character. Is I mean, all of us have to struggle with our faults and failings. And but spiritual evil is. I mean, Melville I think does such a good job. You know the way he says, the way he describes, the way it can conceal itself behind surfaces. And I think he's absolutely right on with all of that. That spiritual evil works that way. Um, um, I'm just I'm I'm calling into question that because I that that's a fundamental difference between a, a Protestant view of the world and a Catholic. Um, and for all the all the all the things you guys have have mentioned go to why it's important to keep that distinction clear because it affects the way that we look at each other. It affects the way we look at kids. It affects the way we look at God. It's a real difference. Um, we're we're past time. Any last questions or comments before we go? It's a wonderful book. Um, it's the language is really tough. There is a spectrum of what what you what you believe is redeemable. Because uh, if God's bigger than all of that, then everything should be redeemable. Well, I mean, we don't know about the demons. I mean, Christ is. Christ is pretty clear when he talks about going into Gehenna and the, you know, it's just, he, he's so stern about the wedding guests, you know, thrown into the world and some of the other people who are going to be thrown in in fire and gnashing. I mean, Christ makes it clear that there is a hell, um, um, but he also makes it clear that, I mean, I, I don't remember him saying anything that would ever give us the idea that anybody was predestined. They're there by choice, by what by what they do, by what they believe. And so many of them, by the way, they've changed God. If you look at the Pharisees and what they do to God, you know, it's, it's um, anyway, um, let me make this bald statement. Um, Manichaeism was one of the ancient heresies, one of the heresies of the ancient world. Zoroasticism, Manichaeism, the duality between body and spirit. There's a deep Manichaean aspect to the American character, this good and evil, the body, the soul, um, depravity, grace. Um, they're very much a part of who we are. We saw it with Hawthorne, we're, we've seen it with Melville. We get some sense of it here because Melville here is in, Melville, is in Moby Dick is dealing with spiritual evils. I mean, he's, he's, he's looking dramatically at how they play out in our world, so. Anyway, um, let's stop. Um, 
It's good to see you all again, all of you. Carl, go ahead. Hi, uh, Tom, are you still on? This is Carl. If you are, could you hold on a little bit after everyone's released? I've got some thoughts on the feedback problem. Can I close out or will can you guys stay on if I close out? I'm just going to close. I'm, I'm not going to close out. I'm just going to lower my window so you and Tom stay on. Okay, everybody else can leave. <laughs> Good to see. We we will we will finish Billy Bud next week. Okay. So we deal to, next week. We go to the tough problems. Really, in the story. I'm not. I don't want to give you what. How, we're going to deal with the crisis next week in the ending. So. I really want to hear your mind on how we look at the ending, what, what this whole story is going to, okay? Because I think it speaks a lot to the American character, and I think it speaks a lot to what's going on in our world today. So, Hi, Barbara. It's the first time I saw your picture here, so good to see you. See Thank you guys. You see you guys. See you Bye, guys. Everybody. I'm going to leave this off, Doc. I don't Tom, if you're muted, turn your sound back on and we'll chat a bit. Let's see.